0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Blog2Watch, and this is the Superlative podcast. My guest today is Mr. Zach Weiss, co-founder of Worn and Wound. Zach, welcome. Hi, thank you so much
1: for having me. It's great to be
0: here. There's a lot of Zachs in the watch industry, aren't there?
1: <laughs> there, there are. there, are Perhaps too many. Uh, but I think I was here first. I don't know. Maybe not.
0: I mean, even on your team, I think there's multiple Zachs. I've had Zachs on my team. There's just a lot of Zachs and Zacharies in the watch industry. It's just funny.
1: Yeah, it is. I guess we're all born around the same time. Uh, it's in, you
0: know, an 80s name. I, um, I, I guess this sort of brings me to the interesting point of how this industry, now that we've both been doing it for well over 10 years, is a remarkably small place, right? It's a very sort of intimate thing. It it's, it's Maybe that's why it keeps us in for as long as it is. But I just love your th- your thoughts on even though this is a global passion and a global industry, it's still very intimate and small, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I think especially amongst like, those of us who have made this our profession. Uh, it's definitely a very small, definitely small group of people. I think we all know each other probably a little too well at this point, you know.
0: see you live in new york and it's it's interesting because you are in the epicenter for what was a long time really all the watch stuff in america now it's sort of moved out a little bit and a lot of the companies are now based in miami but for a long time new york was really where everything was happening in the watch space there'd be multiple events per week and similar to what you're saying like it's like you you actually couldn't work you're just busy socializing all the time and me on the west coast in california i was always like oh oh i can actually work when i'm not going to these events
1: uh yeah i, I suppose i mean i you know we're not the most social group i think out there um at least you know especially early on uh, my co-founder you know Blake Mallon and i like yeah, we're just not the kind of, of guys who really like, love to like schmooze and, and rub elbows too much. I mean, we do it as much as needed, and it's certainly something I've had to become a lot more comfortable with since uh, starting, you know, Warner Wound and and making it a, you know, full time business. Um, but yeah, we're not <laughs> we're not quite like in the midst of the scene, and and these days in particular, I feel too old and lazy to do it. So, <laughs> well,
0: I mean, it's it's true that at least in America, if you sort of look at it statistically speaking the people who are watch enthusiasts who gravitate towards the hobby are often not what you would call the most social of creatures it's not that that we're not sociable but it's that we don't automatically gravitate towards uh, human relationships as we might <laughs> gravitate towards things or interests right so when you for many years put a bunch of watch you know people in a room and i don't mean industry people i mean like people that really like watches it was this sort of like strange dichotomy between it's so great that I'm in a room full of people that like what I like.
1: Oh, wait a minute. Who's going to break the ice? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I remember times where I'd go to these events, which now when I think about who was in the room and who I could have been socializing with um, on both industry and kind of non uh like, uh, you know, e- editorial media, as well as from companies, people I didn't talk to because I was just too nervous. I, you know, I could really kick myself. But well, a, a lot do do? of it is
0: also the culture shock, right? Remember mm-hmm. all the times that, um, especially when we were younger, and we were thrown in a room with a bunch of, basically we'll call them foreign executives, and we were now supposed to understand cultural nuances, what they were talking about. I mean, I remember my early 20s, so I started I was 25, I think probably around the same age. And, mm-hmm. you know, when when I started being invited to these events in Europe and things like that, like, I am just completely thrown into an environment where I have no idea what to do. I don't know how to dress. I don't know how to speak. I don't understand what people's expectations are. Like Other than like being really into watches, I had like no idea what was important to these individuals, mainly because no one ever said anything. Americans are so good at being like, I like this, I don't like this. I don't know that you can say that about most other cultures.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's definitely true. I, and I, I don't know if I've really learned uh, at this point either, other than... Um, you're never going to wear a suit better than like, you know, a Swiss guy. So don't even try, you know. Um, so I, you know, I don't anymore. <laughs> the, the men's warehouse special from the early years of Baselworld is, is given way to, to jeans and things. That as a, I think as an American, I'm more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of interesting because you have
0: America, which in large parts is the most important market for watches in the world. But most watches, especially high-end watches, are not made in America. In fact, almost no Mm -hmm. high-end watches are made in America. And so you have this situation where there's how the Europeans are and want things to be. And then there is the actual consumer experience in America, which is, I guess, a lot more leisurely, casual, if you will, unstructured than in Europe. And it's like they want to do business here. They want to appeal to consumers here. But also they they're not really good at blending in. Like they sort of bring their own culture here. And it is kind of interesting because it is sort of a a form of cultural imperialism, if you will. I mean, I say that almost dramatically, but it's sort of like Mm -hmm. how we do things is better. Let's, let's, how the Swiss will come to America and teach you about being civilized. And that's charming, but in a sense, that's actually what they're thinking, isn't it?
1: Uh you know I'm I'm not going to claim to know what they're thinking but I've definitely felt you know I know what you're mean in the sense that I feel like as an American you kind of have to meet uh people around the world on their standards and then like uh, and on their cultural norms rather than our own which is kind of what you mean probably because we're loud crass and not very uh <laughs> not very good at this stuff um but yeah it is interesting when people come here but it is I mean it's sort of what the watch industry yeah it is I mean it's a it's a product of uh it's a European luxury product or an Asian luxury product. And I mean, America is trying to kind of catch up with that. But, you know, that's something I've kind of felt actually about a lot of American brands. And, you know, there's a handful that are certainly starting to get away from this, but that uh, the aesthetic even of American brands that are launching is still sort of in the European style um, and trying to, yeah, like emulate the European way of doing things. But there's nothing wrong with it either if it's successful. No, no, there's nothing wrong with it. So let's take the conversation... About being social to
0: the events, right? So <laughs> okay. you, you know, you're you're like a a, a, de- a devoted uh, non-social person. I I can claim to be that sometimes, but then mm-hmm. part of the transition of your company has been into being an events company, which has arguably been mm-hmm. a big a big deal for you guys. You and I have known that it's it's been a need for a long time. So yeah. how did you make the decision as a non-social group of watch lovers? to now have social events?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess we made it uh, against our own, uh, you know, human nature uh, after identifying what seemed like, yeah, like an important opportunity, uh, one that we didn't feel like we could, you know, let pass us by at the time, um, which I think certainly was also because we under, I don't even know if we underestimated it. I think we just had no idea quite the level of... Uh, difficulty or just the level of work that it would really be to put together. Um, so it, it Wind Up Watch Fairs started via uh, us actually attending other events ourselves, uh, like men's pop-up uh, fairs and things of that nature. So there used to be one particularly called Pop-Up Flea that uh, might have traveled. I think it did travel the country, but we would we didn't travel the country with it. We would just do them in New York City. It was a really fun time. And it was a sort of like low-key um get together uh over a course of a weekend of 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 all sorts of different things that were sort of in men's fashion or tangential to men's fashion so you know you'd everything from clothing brands to bag brands to um you know beard oils and stuff like that and uh then some watch stuff um Hodinke did have a booth there at times they, they actually did it before us and then eventually we had a booth there and we would just do really well selling our straps it was purely like a strap booth and Readers who knew that we were there would come out and say hi. And, uh, you know, it was just like a really fun time. We always really enjoyed it. And, you know, one time we're literally in a cab coming back from it, just beat from the weekend of, of doing it and just being like, God, we got to bring the feeling of this to the watch industry because, you know, the Swiss trade, the Swiss shows, um, you know, at that time we actually hadn't even gone to SIHH. Um, Those really didn't really apply to us for a little while, but we would do Basel and... You know, people would always ask us, you know, can, should I go to Basel as people are not in the media? And we'd always say, you know, it's probably not a great idea. You're not going to necessarily enjoy it because it's very sort of closed off. Uh, you can't really make meetings since you're, uh, you know, just a consumer. And you are just gonna be looking at stuff uh, behind glass windows, um, but overseas, and it's very expensive to do so. So, it's not really for. It's not really. It's it's probably not what you're hoping it to be. It's not this place where you go and kind of handle watches, and then there's other watch events which are fantastic too, but they're more in the traditional you know form. You know, and um, you know, a lot of respect for the watch time people. They do watch time in New York. They do events around, and th- there it's a ticketed event. It's much more kind of white glove, and it caters to um, a brand that wants that's sort of a little bit of a, a slower maybe slower is not necessarily the right word, but maybe more of an intimate, I should say kind of setting. Whereas wind up watch fair is about that energy. Uh, We actually have a slogan in in, in the, in the company that um, we didn't intend to find, but it really kind of sums up really well what we do and what we, what we try to get across in every channel of of our business. Um, And it really, I think applies very well to wind up watch fair, which is experience enthusiasm. And, that's kind of what is sort of made it work, and yeah, like maybe we weren't social, but there is something different when you when you go to an event where everybody is 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 excited to see the product, and they they know why you're there, and they're excited that you've helped make this thing happen. I mean, there's such positive events. Um, you know, honestly, it's that those are easy. Those are easy for me. I can walk around and talk all day, which is what I do with just random people who want to say hi, um, and it, it's a blast. So. Thank you for telling the little bit of the origin
0: story of WindUp. Um, I think that, as you said, these always begin with an identification of a need. And one of the things which I think has been a struggle for me and possibly yourself in the beginnings of our career, at least, is going to the powers that be within the watch industry and giving them suggestions about what can work well in, in our uh, market in America. Like, hey, you guys should do this, or you should do this, or this would work really well. And just seeing them not do any of it for so long, <laughs> and then eventually yeah. you're like, this this needs to happen. I mean, you've had ideas, I have plenty of ideas. And what's mm-hmm. really struck me when I visited WindUp in San Francisco with you guys recently, because again, this is a city where I, I started my business uh, years before, not not too far from where the event was held was it just takes local um, enthusiasts and business interests to do it. Like As much as this market is important to the Europeans, they will continue to manage from afar. They will never really integrate in the way they need to. We've seen them for years and years try to get retailers to do all kinds of work for them that, frankly, retailers didn't want to do or shouldn't do Mm -hmm. simply because the brands didn't want to do it themselves. And now it's like, okay, if we want to have like actual decent events in America, somehow Americans need to do it because you brands that benefit from it just have no idea like how to do it. You can't agree. I mean, how many years have you thought to yourself, boy, if these brands just got their crap together and came to America and just showed people their watches, just said, come check out our watches like that would be enough. Yet they couldn't agree to do even that. Like you said with the watch time thing, which was sort of the closest thing. It was very like, oh, you have to get a ticket and it's expensive and we can't just have any riffraff in here. And it's got to be very much on the rules of the Swiss and the way that they feel comfortable and, and all the right, you know, n- you know, like claws and gloves to wear before handling it. And as an average American, you're like, screw this. Like it's just – it's too much effort. It's not fun. You guys are making it like buying insurance when the whole point is to like celebrate myself,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. and You know, I mean, it, it's a different style. Like I said, I, I think there is a, a, a type of brand that is just never going to want to have the kind of frenetic energy that comes from a fair that has like thousands of people going through it. They're a little more protective. And, you know, frankly, how many watches do they need to sell and who are they selling them to? There's a little bit of that. You get that air of sort of... um You know, well, my clientele is XYZ, and that's really only who I want to talk to. Our argument there usually is like, well, the future of your brand might be in our audience, might be in this crowd of younger people who are coming in. Um, But yeah, it's a different style. But, you know, for us, what's important is, uh, you know, art is free and it's open to the public. And initially, we really wanted it, uh, we made sure it was sort of in an area that would have passerby. So our very first show is was in Soho in, in New York City on Wooster Street, um, actually not far from where the watches of Switzerland now is. And then we did in Chelsea Market, where we just have this like incredible amount of, of traffic passing by it. So we'd get a lot of people just walking in because they were curious. And that was in the earlier days before the site had grown a lot. Um, now we can make it more of a destination, still get the turnout we need. But, you know, people bring in their dogs. They bring in their kids. Uh, they, you know, it's, it's a family event. And people fly and hang out with their friends there for a weekend, which is something, you know, frankly, we didn't even think, it didn't even occur to us people would do that. They really make a, a trip out of it, which is exciting because it's 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 not just this sales event for them. It's like a place to engage with product and engage in the community and engage in, you know, socializing around that. Um, and, yeah, the the traditional method, the traditional show Luxury show just did not really doesn't cater for that, you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're 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 the new, we're the new kids, right? You know, those of you and me and like, you know, in, in an old in an old luxury, in <laughs> old industry. So not well, that old. Let's I think Old-ish. you bring up
0: a very important point. Look, the industry is ancient, right? This is a hundreds of years old industry. But I think what's, yeah, when you what's really, yeah, interesting, yeah. the clients, and when I say the clients, I don't mean the buyers and the consumers, but the brands that would come to the show. They're very different companies than most of the brands that would show up at a watch time. The watch industry in America for a long time was dominated by quite high-end. And it was, as you said, mm-hmm. supposed to be this protected enclave of consumers, very, very much in the traditional sense, classist, which again, it's not good or bad. It's just it is. It's 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 trying to be exclusive. It's trying to say, you can't just come here if you like it, you have to have done something earned some money or showed real interest. And the types of brands that show up at windup, the types of companies that are the exhibitors, are a very different species right now. And this is a relatively new species in the watch industry. Really, on the last 10, 15 years, has the enthusiast-led brand been a thing? Oftentimes, they come with lower price points, but, but that's by no means... Uh, uh, you know ex- I mean look at MBNF. This is uh, mm-hmm. I, I, theoretically an enthusiast brand that mm-hmm. now has some pop culture appeal, but really at the end of the day is still an enthusiast brand and it goes down to watches which are maybe as low as $100 dollars. And so the interest that consumers have is not just in these $10,000 plus watches, but this new ecosystem and this new ecosystem of brands need new services and has a different a perspective. And it was just sort of a matter of time. In fact, there's probably even more demand. But uh, that, for me, is is the you know the, the the other side of the origin story of of wind up and shows like it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Warner wound, and you know, other other ones. of course as well have we've kind of built ourselves on helping champion that side of the industry, you know, and um, for, for better or worse at some times, you know, that was really was our specific focus early on uh, was, you know, we limited ourselves by price point, And we really kind of wanted to talk about off the beat brands, this whole new, uh, you know, kind of post Kickstarter wave of, of, you know, micro brands, which I know some people don't like that term. I don't say it with any kind of, um, as a pejorative at all, you know, it's something actually I'm fond of the the term, but, uh, and something these brands are challenged with is obviously selling their watches. You know, it's, it's, oddly become easier and easier to start a watch brand, but then running one and getting in front of customers is very difficult and it doesn't necessarily get any easier. So, you know, a brand might have a moment when they launch a watch and you will write about them, I'll write about them, a few other websites will write about them. Um, But then that moment fades and they have to continue to engage with customers, but they're not retail brands, they're direct-to-consumer brands. So, you know, they need these other opportunities and I, you know that was that was certainly part of it is to give these brands the opportunity to actually meet their customers and also give the customers then uh, the ability to kind of shop around and see these brands that they couldn't see otherwise you know they're online only so there's no other choice um, yeah I mean I think it's good for really both both sides uh, of the uh, of the equation. Um, and you know, I, I would love it if MBF wanted to, to, uh, come to the show. I don't know if Max is listening, but you know, to me, <laughs> that kind of brand, I mean, that, they would fit in, they would fit in. They might, they, would. they, they would, would, uh, cause you know, especially a brand that has a sense of, of, of whimsy, a sense of creativity, you know, they, they obviously are making extremely high end product, but they do so, um, I think from a place of, of a different kind of, of passion and, and intrigue. And, you know, I think they, they love to tell, they love to talk, they love to tell their stories, you know, Erworks and, uh, mb and and, you know, all those kinds of brands. And, you know, we have, we don't have anything quite on that high level, but, uh, the, the, there are watches at a higher price point now at the show. There was, uh, Fierce had some, you know, precious metal pieces. We have Manasseh who, you know, they're, they're a fantastic brand and, um, you know, they have some pieces with handmade dials that are, you know, in the, I think over 20 grand and, Right. It's all about showing them to people and talking to them and handing them a loop so they can see it, because otherwise it's you know, how else do you get to learn about these things? One of the main
0: I guess you could say values of an event like this is really just the ability to see and touch the product. Brands sometimes forget how important that is for most consumers, meaning I should, you know, see and touch this watch, at least put it on my wrist before I decide to spend thousands of dollars uh, or, you know, or more, a little, little bit less, on this. And so most of these companies, especially these these smaller brands that are newer, there's no other opportunity for them to put their products in the hands of consumers other than the wind-up or, or maybe something like it. Usually mm-hmm. there's no stores. Usually, like you said, a place like uh, Watches and Wonders, even if they're at that show, it's not a place for consumers to go. It's a real issue that I don't think is discussed enough because You know, it's great for us because we're, you know, internet platforms. And yes, most of the time people are learning about brands and products on the internet first. But brands have this weird idea that people are going to make their entire decision making process happen online only. And Mm -hmm. while there's a few people that will be happy to buy watches sight unseen, most people are just not that confident. They'll, the 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 internet will get the product on the radar and they might even end up buying the watch on the internet but they want to see it in person or the next best thing which is you know just dozens and dozens of pictures on instagram or you know watch reviews i don't know but it's so crucial that they do that and it's like you can sit there and talk about well why do people go to watch events if you're a consumer and you want to spend money on this stuff going to a windup allows you to try on a a pretty big swathe of things. You can buy there if you want to, but I don't even think that's the point. I think the point is like, you, you're helping them make that decision-making process, and I think the brands should recognize that they need to have some patience. Some of them do, not all of them. That you know, it takes months for people to make this decision. So, you know, they learned about it online, they went to wind up, they put it on their wrist, and they still not, might need to make a few decisions, like try some of their mm-hmm. watches on before they buy something. You know, I think on the downside, is for the exhibitors, is they think it's like a swap meet, like you said. And people are like, hustling, like let's make a deal, let's make a deal, I want to buy something today. day. It's like, consumers aren't always feeling that.
1: No, certainly not. I think, um, you know, particularly, yeah, any watch is, is still... An investment of of your money. I mean, not like a you you should expect it to appreciate, but like they're expensive pieces. Even the cheap watches are expensive compared to other items, and I completely understand needing to dwell and think about a watch for an ex- an extraordinarily long amount of time. And um, yeah, I mean, often. I've, I have bought things in the past myself after debating them um, and doing the same thing that any other consumer would do, and like looking at the photos and trying to read a bit about it and you know wrap my head around it and ultimately make the decision. And then I get it and I don't like it. You know, it, it happens. So just helping alleviate that um, because it is it is stressful and you know I don't I think it's just uh, it, it's frankly the right way to do things is to you know experience them when you're spend, spending a you know a decent amount of money.
0: So. Let's talk more about the nuts and bolts of the event. Talk about some of the funny behind the scenes stories. Like what are some <laughs> of the conversations with brands that wouldn't be obvious? What are some of the funny things with consumers? I mean, you've done a few of these now uh, in multiple cities, you know it's you're 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 into the sort of uh, medium zone, the middle zone of the business when it comes to the the fairs. You know, there's more to mature, but you're definitely not brand new at that. You you already have some of your dedicated equipment and team for that. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of the mm-hmm. funny things, because I think that people don't realize, just in like reviewing watches or having relationships with brands, it's so not straightforward. But once you host events for them, the level of intimacy goes up, and so does some of the hilarity and drama or <laughs> frustration.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know much I can really say. Uh, I can't also, divulge too much, huh? Yeah, I also <laughs> so you know one thing that we learned, and, and you know, like you said, it's it's getting to this more mature stage now. You know, so we 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 technically launched Wind Up Watcher in uh, in 2015, um, and you know, it was uh, it was terrifying. It was a p- fairly small show compared to what they are now. I mean, much it was a small show compared to what they are now. I think we had 12 brands or something like that. I don't even know how many people came through the space. Um, it was incredibly nerve wracking. Um, you know, here's here's funny stories I can relate that I can you know, tell maybe less about interactions with brands, but more about the process of like working with spaces and vendors. And I also just want to make it clear me as Zach Weiss, this has never been the thing that I have done mostly. So ver- Blake Mallon originally really helmed, um, getting the fairs organized and I was going to say now that we are more uh, mature in this process. And also just as a company, we have a Nelly Calhoun, who is our events manager, who this is her full-time job is making this stuff happen. And then we have Kyle Snar, who's our director of partnerships, who works on sale, selling the actual show. And they deal with the brands at this point, you know, I I almost just get to show up and enjoy the fair. Um, But in the early days, you know, we were doing everything and, gosh you know you just people you have to deal with to rent spaces are, are were were a nightmare originally you know we were dealing with some really shady people but so at the original the very first windup we had this great location we we're super excited about it it was uh, used to be a Patagonia store um and it was on Wooster Street and in is 101 Wooster Street which is a great location I forget the cross street but it's like a sweet spot in Soho on like a really nice block. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It it was a, it was a great find. It was a great size. So we were super excited about two weeks before the show, they tore up the entire sidewalk from front of the venue, just gone, completely gone. Like you can't even walk there. And, uh, the guy we rented from knew that that was going to happen and didn't tell us about it. And, um, then lied to us. It would be done. So the weekend of the fair, like there just there was there was uh, some very tough conversations <laughs> with this guy <laughs> about this all. Um and uh eventually they had to like build a little like bridge to cross this chasm that was there from the street getting gutted. Um I think it might have worked for our benefit in the end because there was also this whole area that was kind of guarded off and we made them pay to put up vinyl signs for our fair there because, you know, you, you no longer could kind of like see the the windows. It was – yeah, that was, that was fun. And yeah, you just run into these little things, you know, um, signage. God – so we now have, you know, this investment, we have these signs. Signage has been always very difficult in the event, in the fair itself, because we provide signage for people, but at the same time, um, there's only so much we can do without then it getting very, very expensive and and also very complicated. There's sort of a fine line there. Um, so the original thing was just very clean. We hung signs on the walls behind the brands. Ven- venues do not like it when you hang stuff on the walls. So you you'd be very careful with that if they even let you. Um, and then they just fall. They fall. They don't stay up. So our first few years, we just had these disasters of signs falling in the middle of the night and breaking. And um, it, it was just totally terrible. You're, you're, you know, your
0: show was haunted basically by poltergeists.
1: Yeah. Little things like that, you know, yeah. and it's just, you deal with it or, you know, uh, one of our first shows in San Francisco So uh, the venue we're at now is the second venue we've had. We used to be a little gallery that was off of the Union Square area in San Francisco. Um, Very beautiful space, but just we outgrew it. And the, once again, the sign vendors we did vinyl decals with for the window, though they were supposed to be white, they did it in like frost. So like the kind of stuff you put on like a divider so that, you know, like a glass divider, just so it's not fully transparent, like fully opaque. Which is invisible. Like, you can't see that signage. So that was just a total disaster. And that we couldn't even fix. Like, we just had to deal with it, you know. But yeah, you know, brands, brands are, they're good. Some are, you know, it's a, yeah, I, I don't know what show. (laughs) <laughs> most of the brands are really wonderful. There's always, you know, people have um, high expectations. You know, of course, they're spending a lot of money, so we do our best to deliver. Um, and you can't please everyone all the time, but we do. We, we do our best, and we always try and make sure everything is like at the end um, smoothed over. If somebody didn't have a great time for whatever reason, you know. Do you,
0: do you like when they ask you questions like, "How many people are going to come to my booth, or how many watches am I going to sell, or how much money am I going to make"?
1: Yeah, you know, we kind of say, you know, that's that's sort of uh, it's sort of out of our control, or it's sort of up to you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's something that is hard to explain to brands is that just putting people in the space isn't necessarily going to sell their watches. They still have to do their job and and interact and explain their product, and they have to have product people want. And you know, not everyone who makes watches understands that. Their product, I mean, not everyone in who makes products, period, understands that they made something that they might be passionate about, but doesn't always translate. But, you know, it's it's a good way to learn, frankly, what to do and how to kind of improve your product is to put it in front of hundreds or thousands of people in a weekend, have them handle it and tell you bluntly at times, because watch enthusiasts can certainly be pretty blunt, um, what they think of it, you know? Geneva-based
0: watchmaker Raymond Weil invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW-1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Weil in Switzerland, the RW-1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Weil harmoniously integrates the RW-1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW-1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond wilecom to see more. So I'm thinking down the line a little bit in WindUp 2.0, and what I'm recognizing is a merger between retail and event, When, where in a lot of ways, WindUp is, is less of a fair and more of a traveling store. So rather than having one brick-and-mortar location, it moves around and shows people in, in wherever their locality is the watches that it carries. And you see this, you have Oris that has their Airstream um, vehicles that have little stores built in. And uh, this is sort of not a novel concept, but it's never there's never really been a traveling store quite in this way. And so I think the necessary step is in removing the brand's participation. I mean, they don't need to show up. The necessary step is to have someone who would be acting their stead, uh, an ambassador or a salesperson or some representative, so that people want to visit your traveling store, but the brands themselves, who have a very low amount of employees, sometimes one person, don't need to be burdened with having to show up. So therefore, you get to do all the things that the consumer likes, and the brand gets to benefit, but they don't have to physically show up; only their watches do. So, would you agree that that might be where the show needs to go or could go?
1: I don't think that the show as a whole would ever go that way. Um, I think there's very likely to be some sort of offshoots in a much smaller scale that could be like that. Uh, you know, especially because we do have, you know, our own other retail, the Wind Up Watch Shop, which you know we've done pop-ups before. We're likely to do that kind of stuff again. Um, they were just very labor-intensive and we need to kind of figure it all out while balancing the fairs. But, you know, one thing that is so important to the fairs that I just think uh, you can't lose, at least entirely, is the ability to interact with the people behind the actual brands. Uh, the passion they have, the depth of knowledge they have of their product, the anecdotal aspects of it, and and frankly, also the not the fandom. Maybe fandom. I don't know. People you know, people buy the watches online, maybe in the middle of the year, and then they want to come meet the people behind that brand. That's part of it for them. And not having people at the fair from the brand would just I'd really take away from that. So in that aspect, I, I, you know, I, there is no replacing the fair. So um, let, but I let's do agree l- about yeah. bringing product to the people where they are when you can. I mean, and that is something we are thinking about, you know.
0: So maybe it's not a worn and wound problem, maybe it's a brand problem, and the idea being that a brand that wants to truly scale to be successful, meaning they have a a, a proprietor or a manager or a lead designer who doesn't have to travel all the time, has to hire some type of lead sales director – um, MBNF, going back to them, successfully did that, where Max Booster was able to hire trusted salespeople who would represent him and who tell the story. So maybe the way that brands grow is by finding uh, a person who is a, a head of sales, who is charismatic and, and, and fun, that and people want to go meet and can represent the brand and will offer a, a, a good substitute than the, the brand founder themselves. Because I think that you're right. People don't want to just come for the products; they want to sort of meet the people. But if this is going to be a successful business model, in order to scale and have sustainability, you can't ask the people running the business to be on the road all the time because that's a lot of work and that's hard. And traditionally, that's not where you know CEOs and founders are 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 best used in terms in terms of their time.
1: Yeah, I mean that's fair. You know, I think I don't think it's us necessarily asking that so much as the brands deciding that and kind of taking the temperature of. Um, of their audience and you know of their other consumers. You know, on one hand, you have a brand like Christopher Ward, where Mike France has come to several of them. Um he doesn't come to everyone throughout the year, but he likes to be present. He likes to interact and you know he's no stranger to sales in his career and he has a big team. So it's a it's a conscious decision to to be that ambassador for the brand. Um, other companies, you know, thinking like uh, you know Zodiac, which is obviously part of part of Fossil Group, so it's a whole different structure. But you know, they have Mike Pearson, who is that kind of person you're talking about. It's like a a guy who's like an ambassador for the brand he works for, and he's always very. He's I was very thinking good the same that.
0: guy. Yeah. Between yeah. all the brands he's been at, Bramont, you know, Ernst Benz, yeah. my, he, but he's the rare one, right? And he, yeah. he's he's an Englishman that moved to the United States and was able to do that successfully and bring. Uh, you know a a, fo- a foreign mentality but that was very sort of amenable to america but you're, you're you're right that he's like uh, an archetype of this type of role but there's not enough guys like that
1: yeah no I mean, they're very hard to find um, but you know i think it's it's you know i think this kind of speaks to a larger conversation which is not even that about up watch fair it's really about like the growth of these smaller brands and kind of how they can scale um, because we're starting to see some of these brands get pretty significant, you know, and it's it's really interesting to see. I think the, the it's turning a corner now from the, oh, micro brand to established, you know, once again, this, these terms are just terrible, but like you're becoming these more kind of established entities that are, you know, can't be ignored by the larger luxury groups and whatever, and they have enough money now to start hiring people and doing things. And yeah, I mean, at a certain point, just, Having a website, running Facebook ads, doing social media, it's, you know, it's not, it's not enough to keep scaling, you know, and the questions of retail and how you sell are are those big scaling questions. And it's something these brands have to confront. Um, and it's complicated, you know.
0: Now, from a business perspective, just going on the same topic that we're discussing, retail, um, Worn and Wound, which... For many years, sort of a blog like a blog to watch, focusing on a particular price category, Uh, you know, introduced a store component, as Mm -hmm. did some others, and I think it's because there's a market need. There, for a long time, were really no strong internet-first watch retailers. There was the big companies like the Amazons that. You know, you could buy watches from. There's some department stores, but like specialists that really focused on, on selling watches online, there were a few, but not many. And many were very like closed entities. I think of like WatchBuys.com, which no one mm-hmm. seems to talk about because they do no <laughs> outreach. If you don't know about them, it's like they're a little siloed thing. They do their own thing, and that's that. Um, but there's just not. There was not enough uh, uh, of sort of online watch retail and traditional watch retail essentially we'd have to invest in a whole new business because an online store is as expensive to run in many instances as a retail store at the very least it has its completely own set of costs and things mm-hmm. it needs and so traditional brick and mortar retail what i've come to learn is was is never and was never going to be in the position to just transition their business to the online space um, yeah. and it's been it's been very difficult for the uh, the the watches.com of the world right to uh, to bring aboard the big brands and things like that. So websites that maybe were media were in a very good position to become the watch doors of today. There's still a lot uh, of, of progress to be made, and there's also now more of a media vacuum, but that's a whole other story. But I guess <laughs> it's sort of a very long preamble of explaining why it's very logical that your business could very easily transition into selling watches online because there was a very real need for that that wasn't being addressed by the current players
1: in the industry would would you would you have any thoughts or modifications on what i would say um no i mean i think you know in essence i i i definitely agree with with what you said you know um yeah i think this is something you and i have just talked about over over dinner at places but like Editorial is very difficult to make money off of. It's a it's a tricky space. There's limited options, limited way to work with brands. You're also you're kind of at the behest of the, how the internet is working at the time, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of ebbs and flows there that we learn sometimes quite painfully. That you know Google can change an algorithm and it can directly affect a lot of things. You know it's it's a it's a complicated living organism, the internet. But um, you know we just going back to warner wound we are an independent uh company we started it with um, myself Blake Mallon and, and James Helm's a other partners based in San Diego like we just threw in a little bit of cash like a few thousand dollars and that is the only uh startup money like we've we've ever had we've we haven't had any other investments so and we aren't we were fairly young and not independently wealthy, <laughs> so there wasn't any other, you know, backing. There was no safety net um, for this for this company, and it's just always been a slow grind to build and figuring out what is the next best thing. What can we do um, to support our business to keep it running and to grow it? Because that has also been an interest is, you know, that we didn't want to just stop it at a certain point. Um, you know we're still finding that place where it is sort of this 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 machine that is you know the proper size and scale. It's not we're not trying to become a hundred million dollar luxury player or something like that, but we are just trying to make a good business that's comfortable for ourselves and our you know pays our employees and all that kind of stuff. And it just it all signs pointed to, well, the retail is really the best place. So we you know we started with straps and that was, a mixed opportunity because a was a way to make money, but then it was also because and I'm sure you remember this in like 2012 um, or a little, I guess it was 20, no, it was 2012 that we launched a strap store. That was another thing that was really quite missing. Like you had a handful of online strap stores, but they were catering to Bell and Ross and, and uh, Panerai enthusiast and very little was uh, American made unless it was by Hadley Roma. And very little was kind of like using stuff like Horween leather, um, which, was an interest of ours, American Media hoarding Leather, as just like an offshoot of kind of men's fashion at the time. You know, there was a resurgence of all that. Anyway, I don't want to rehash all that, but that's kind of, you know, that was the opportunity to us was straps originally. Um, and then you realize just how much, what's the scale there? And now there's a ton of different strap companies. I'm actually incredibly impressed by the straps people make, but that's a whole nother yeah, conversation. Yeah. And then, yeah, you know, we eventually, we were like, you know, the next step really is is watches because, You know, like I said, there's an opportunity. There's not a lot at the time of like online strong online retail for a certain type of brand, a certain type of enthusiast that's going to speak to them and to the watches in a way that in our I don't want to say respectful, but you know the way we want to do it, which is relates to the tone and the style of Warren Wound of the approach. You know, we're always just about approachability, so we wanted the store to feel that way because. Even an online store can feel a little buttoned up and a little like unfriendly. And frankly, I was also always amazed by some of the stores you'd go to online and be like, this is the photo set you have. You have a single photo. Where's the side? Where's the case back? Like, I want to, I'm a nerd about this stuff. I want to find it all. So we just, that was it. We just wanted to create that for ourselves and obviously grow the business through it. I want to
0: point out something that I think is necessary based upon what you're saying. And it's essentially this. When it comes to watches and a lot of other goods, the people who sell it should not be the person, people that make it. The people that make it have one idea about their product and how they want to be positioned. But the people that sell it are really about offering a, a necessary item to a group of people that want it. People who make a good very rarely have a specific person in mind to buy it. But someone you know, like yourself, who is in a retail position, who knows their audience... Knows how to speak to their audience, what their audience wants. As long as they have the good that, that the audience would be interested in, they can communicate and sell it to that audience in a way that is more often than not far superior than the company that makes that product. It's just, it's related really psychology and, and a lot of things like that. And so I think the wisdom here is, is really goes back to why watch brands have always worked with retailers, and that is that someone else can communicate and sell their product better than them. And that is exactly the same thing online, yet the trend continues to be, well, we'll just have our own online store. We'll go direct to consumer, which requires having an entire separate team of people who are thinking like retailers and not like they work at a brand. It's, it's such a different, almost uh, diametrically opposed psychology that you really need to have a separation. And so I think that there's a lot of wisdom to, to share with brands then, unless you could be like a Louis Vuitton and create incredible amounts of demand for your products so that people go to the store because they want the brand so much, you need to rely on a partner who's gonna sell those things for you because they're gonna do a better job. And incumbent upon that is you need to share profits with them. This is this is this is crucial. You as a luxury brand cannot be uh, a type of entity that takes a huge margin because necessarily the luxury watch industry around the world requires a lot of partners and they each need to take a piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's. I think it's a mix. You know, I think on, on one hand, some brands are fantastic at telling their story and building their an environment uh, that is nice to 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 shop in. It's not Who met, who? who? You know, okay. So, a brand that pops in mind, uh, I, I think like Fair has a wonderful website, and they do a very nice job, and they are a direct consumer brand. But they can't um,
0: scale. It's it's the whole point of scaling, right? They're still new, ex- young, excited team, willing to do it all and work eighteen hour days, like. You admit that's basically what they have to do to do it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how much of the hours they work, but you know, I think it's also about the desire and what they're how big they want to scale. But you know, it's like I don't disagree with you. I think it's just a combination. You know, I do think that. It's validating for brands to be sold through other stores, and like you're saying, stores will know their local, you know, clientele. They'll know their their community online, etc. So it is very helpful. I also think, you know, in terms of the the large luxury brands, especially ones that are pulling out of retail or been minimizing it, you know, their margins seem to only be going up. So like, where is the rest of that cut going? You know, a challenge that brands have now in the in the you know uh, this the Micro brand enthusiasts, small independent space, whatever you want to call it, is obviously that a lot of them launched as this direct to consumer model. This, you know, I, I know you probably remember all those Kickstarter drawings of like we're cutting out the middleman, and it, everyone became so value obsessed that they forgot that um, some of those margins are in there to help run a business and develop new product and and do what you're saying, which is profit share uh, to other entities so that they can assist in the process. So. Brands will have to kind of figure out their method because they probably have a maybe the wrong business model right now to even get there. I would go so far
0: as to say, just writing on this topic, that most consumers in the U.S. don't even want to buy a luxury product directly from the brand. Most want to buy through a dealer because they feel that there's more trust, uh, accountability, maybe discount involved. But I, I'm just well, discount, yeah. I, I, I really think that the smartest move for brands is to make your watches market online, and then have just one or a small number of online authorized dealers who can then message their own audiences, make their own content, and do whatever. Like I, mm. I, I just don't see a future in brands trying to dip their toes everywhere. We're going to sell direct. We're going to have online authorized dealers. We're going to have offline authorized dealers. And we're just going to have, you know, just a a complete chaos. This has ruined the distribution of a lot of historic watch brands. Um, A lot of the Japanese brands were very guilty of this, where they had completely different rules for different markets and different pricing. And so they, they had this issue called trans-shipping, which was really bad, where lower-cost items from other countries were coming to the U.S. And there were real watches, but they were undercutting the margins of the official authorized distributor in the U.S. region. So without really trying to, the brand was screwing up its own markets and creating unfair competition between them, mm-hmm. all because of the sort of chaos and they were trying to do too many things at once. Uh, the world is not that big anymore. The world is sort of like one market. Yes, there's a lot of, like, customs and issues moving goods across countries, but because the Internet is essentially just the only boundaries are language... Um, th- brands need to just settle on a more narrow amount of distribution uh, uh, you know, schemes online and let those distribution partners actually create and invest in, in their own markets, actually let them feel like they have some ownership over a space. Uh, and you're, gonna, you're probably gonna starting to experience this, where you want to develop the market online for some of the brands you carry, but you have to have some very strict understandings with the brands. Isn't
1: that right? Yeah, I mean, we have some regional kind of uh, locks on some of the brands and things like that, for sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is yes, we're
1: interested in some exclusivity. But you agree that... Oh, no, stu- we we actually, you know, brands have come to us and exclusivity is not what we want because that's sort of against the nature of of Worn and Wound. I mean, you know, and I, I think we, we want brands to do well. So if you sell through us and... You know, I mean, somebody offered it to us like they really want us to take it. I mean, it's not like we're going to say no, but we have suggested to brands that they don't do that, that they work with us, that they work with other people, that they get into some retail as well. Because, you know, there there are it it has caused issues for some brands, particularly some European brands that are in the U.S. uh, in a very limited way because of exclusivity. And it's just it's not doing them or the enthusiasts who are interested in the brands really any good. So let, let's talk
0: about the future of, of competition online. Is it just a price war, the race to the bottom, or is it more than that? Because that doesn't leave a lot of winners. If the way to win consumers' attention is by having the cheapest price online, that gets to the bottom very quickly, and it doesn't really go anywhere. What is the yeah. way to win? If you're a retailer and you're being uh, pro, you know like pitched by a, a brand – uh, I'm sorry. If you're no, if you're a brand, you're being pitched by a retailer. Uh, what do you? What should you want to hear to say yes? You should sell my watches online because I think brands don't know. They don't know who to trust. They want to <clears> make money, but you know, in the real world, they can go to a store and check it out and see like, oh, this is a nice area, or these, you know, this staff is nice. This is these are nice displays. Like they can make a decision. Do do I want do I want my watch to be sold here? Other than like numbers, which can be you know changed. What is a way of evaluating uh, an online retailer, in your opinion?
1: You know, I mean, I, I think there's there's a handful of, of different factors. I mean, one is the community of that retailer. Um, if they have one, who they're actually going to be reaching. And I think that's sort of one of the ways in which currently that, you know, different online retailers are, not necessarily competing with each other because they sort of have generated their own communities in different ways and have different allegiances from from people. Obviously everyone, there's SEO and all that crap that is just sort of the nature of it. But so that's one thing is just sort of how rich is that community? Not riches in wealth, but like like in terms of like the value of it. Are they who are they? Are they knowledgeable? Uh, are they people who are just looking for a deal, uh, you know, which is um it, that is certainly a group of people out there. Um, you know, people probably go to gray market sites and things like that, which you know, we'll stay away from that whole whole thing. But um, and then the other thing is, how do they treat? How does that store treat a brand? You know, I, I think this is where we try to focus: is that we try to tell the story of the product. We try to do it visually. We try to do it through words as as, as well as you can, or in the very limited kind of environment of of an online uh, uh, shop page where uh, you also don't necessarily want somebody to, um, you know, you, you kind of have, there's a funnel, you need to kind of get people to actually check out not get lost or confused into too much stuff. So it's a balance of being succinct, but also being, you know, telling the right things, um, versus other retailers, which are just going to grab a thumbnail off of a website and use copy and paste for a blurb that's on the retailer site, you know, or on the brand site originally, which, you know, I think to your, point before, um, we were saying that they, uh, they need other people to sell them. Um, if a online retailer is just copying and pasting from somebody else, I mean, what good is that either? Um, you know, how, where's the sort of interpretation, where's the sort of validation that could come from, you know, a specialty store kind of talking about them. Um, but you know, this is stuff that's all, that's all developing. Uh, and it's kind of, it's a little, it's, I think it's hard to say a hundred percent, you know? No, it's, it's, it's
0: an interesting conversation to have because like you said, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things that aren't being solved. I knew a long time ago that all of this stuff would need to be sorted out. You know, 15 years ago when I started, I fully recognized that like watches to be sold online needs to have all this stuff figured out and we're not there. Now, 15 years later, we have a little bit of it figured out, not that much. Um, you still see brands just not completely understanding what they need to do in order to um, uh, to, to do business on, online. Uh, but these types of conversations need to happen because this is too often a follow the leader type of business where somebody will follow the uh, strategy of an, uh, someone else, even if that strategy had no basis in, in planning, it was just copying someone else. And so brands don't sit there and think, hmm, I really want to do it different what should i do they're like okay who's doing it right and how can i copy and if no one's doing it right there's no one to copy right so everyone's trying to figure it out so no, everybody in 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 doing business online has to see it as a creative venture which means you have to try new things and take risks and if you're obsessed with looking for data to support your decisions you're you're in the wrong business get get out of there go 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 invest in commodities or something like that's not what this is this is this is a frontier And frontiers Mm -hmm. require people to risk it all.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I I certainly agree with that. You know, I think, uh, especially with watches and and luxury goods, I mean, they're emotional purchases. They're not purchases of need. Um, So you can't treat them like, with the expectation that they'll just sell because they exist. You know, it takes more effort than that. So we'll go to the last line of questioning.
0: And that has to do with sort of what can come next in... Uh, the life cycle of a retailer. And what sometimes can come next is making your own watches. You begin by talking about watches. Then you start to sell watches and you start to understand what sells and you understand um, maybe price points that make sense. And the incentive to make your own watches and make your own brand is is pretty strong. A lot of retailers have done that. Uh, sometimes that becomes their entire business. Sometimes it's just something they push alongside everything else no doubt you've flirted with the idea and talked about it with your you know your your friends and your and your team members can you understand uh you know why that always happens where you want to make a watch is that something you're you're seriously entertaining uh talk about that as being part of the watch retailer life cycle
1: sure so you know what i say well first of all that was always it's always been my goal i, I you know, i've told people this um i think on po- on podcasts before publicly but like had worn and wound Started a couple years later, or I shouldn't say worn around Had like things in my life been as such that we'd been a couple years later in 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 getting into watches and starting a business and Kickstarter had existed. I don't know if I would have gone the direction of editorial so much as gone directly into uh, trying to create watches and a watch brand. I mean, my background is in product design. I have a master's in product design. I designed watches before I really knew very much about watches. Um, So that's always been kind of the the core of my passion for watches is in the design aspect of it and sort of in creating things um, and have just taken a very, very, very long route to uh, to doing that that has led me in this whole other world, which has been fascinating and still is fascinating, obviously. But we very early on did start doing collaboration projects or our our very first uh, limited edition collaboration, which... I'm Hesitant to say was the first anyone put out. It certainly wasn't the most uh, uh, the the one that got the most attention. But we we did one with Aviate. Um, I think also back in twenty fifteen, it was really early. It was, it was a great project. And so there's always been this thread of creating watches, uh, but first as collaborations, and um, that started off sort of slowly because as a matter of just the scale of our business, um, and we've ramped that up, and we are we. Do several a year. And so that's actually something I personally focus on a lot in the company. That's kind of my my department, if you will, is uh, the creation of these limited editions, seeking out brands, working on all that, doing all the storytelling around it. Um, So on one hand, we sort of are making watches, just we are doing it with other brands, which... Um, you know, the whole collab LE thing is, is a fascinating process because it is sort of a, it's a mix of uh, of a retail opportunity. It's a mix of a marketing opportunity. We both have skin in the game. Um, it works really well for brands and it, they get a lot of exposure out of it. We do press releases and all that stuff. And you know, a blog to watch Hodinkee. Other people write about them when we do them, and and vice versa. There's actually a nice community when 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 Hodinkee launches something, we write about it, and when, when Fratello launches something, we write about it. And we all kind of write about each other's projects, and it helps the brands. It supports us, and it's just you know it's it's part of the model. But for me, the juice is in the design. That's that's the part I have fun time with. I create decks of designs. I have, you know, I love the process of working with brands and sampling and color selection and straps and all, all of that stuff. So that is always ongoing and that is continual, continually going to be there. Last year, we did launch um, our first line of watches under the Adapt sub-brand we have. So we kind of are already starting to do this process, Um, but the watch that we launched was still a collaboration. So I worked with Boulder to create the Adapt Series One watch, which was essentially using their case, but a redesign of all the other elements. Um, And that was our first foray into having a sub brand. But what's important to me, especially considering our retail, uh, uh, sorry, our, our editorial side, our relationships with brands, is that whatever we do that is like our own thing is going to be radically different from other people's products. They're not going to just jump on the trend that is the prevailing trend amongst the micro brands or whoever at the time that they're all doing well with. Like To me, that would be weird. That'd be like doing all this research and then making something. Rather, I, I'm more interested in always finding our own path. And Frankly, that might not necessarily lead to as successful of a product, but um, so far so good. Though the adapt stuff has gone over well, but you know we're just trying to carve our own niche with it, and then yes, yeah, see where that goes. I don't think that's ever going to be that's never going to take over uh, the 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 business. I mean, you know, it's a it's but it's an aside. It's just another brand kind of.
0: Okay, so we'll we'll expect to see more creativity and designs from you in the future.
1: Yes, certainly, certainly a lot of stuff coming out. I mean. Gosh, I'm sure you know. From like the, the the manufacturing delays are just so brutal. So we really should have had a few limited editions out this year that none of them have happened so far. Um, but hopefully within the next few weeks we'll be launching something. But honestly, it's not even set in stone yet. So, but yeah, there'll be a lot of cool stuff coming out this year and in the future. Zach, we're we're
0: we're at we're at the end of time. Let everyone know where they can find you on the internet. Uh, just website,
1: social media. What do you want to plug?
0: Certainly. certainly.
1: So obviously there's wornandwound.com or at wornandwound. That is uh, the main uh, blog and website. If you're looking for just me on social media, I'm at ZSW. Um, and if you want more information on the windup watch fairs, there's windupwatchfair.com. We do have a show coming up in Chicago in July and another one in New York in October. Um, and then, you know, for what we're talking about the retail is windupwatchshop.com. Uh, lots of websites, but not too hard to remember, hopefully.
0: Fantastic. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Zach Weiss, co-founder of Worn and Wound. Zach, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. This has been really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.